Welcome to the podcast. In and through exist to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim Elmore, and I am the senior pastor at Memorial Baptist Church, Stratford, Ontario. And I'm Marshall Morton, the associate pastor at NBC. And here we have a bonus episode. Uh, if you're listening through with us as we read through uh, the scripture this year, uh, you'll know that from time to time we stop and we put in a mark with a, a special bonus episode. Uh, and today we're going to do a bonus episode. And, and before we get into it, I just want to throw back to something. You remember a few weeks back when we were talking about Saul and Saul coming in as the king. And uh, we, made, we made a little bit of joke about how everyone there was excited to have Saul be the king uh, and, and the credential that they loved so much about him was that he was tall and handsome because that's what everyone needs in a king is a tall, handsome guy. That's right. And we talked about a number of pastors who are great pastors, mm -hmm. who are leaders of men that don't fit that bill. That's true. Right? Yeah, Joe Thorne, fantastic pastor, not a tall guy. Nope. John Piper, not a tall guy. You know who we didn't talk about? Who's that? Paul Martin. You know why? Because Paul Martin's a tall, handsome guy. And Paul Martin is here with us. <laughs> Paul, welcome to the podcast. That is by far the strangest two minutes of my life. It's <laughs> great to be with you, though, brothers. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> you should. <laughs> so Paul is the pastor, Grace Fellowship in Toronto. Uh, he works with uh, the Gospel Coalition Canada. Uh, does some uh, appearing from now and then with uh, Nine Marks and, uh, and other groups like that. And he's going to be here today with us talking about biblical genres. So, Paul, first question, what is a genre? <laughs> or should we say it the good French-Canadian way of genre? Ooh. Let's not. Let's say genre. No, let's don't. Let's don't. Yeah, yeah. let's don't. <laughs> uh, genre is a word that I didn't ever learn about in uh, college or seminary, to the best of my knowledge, although I forgot a lot of what I learned. Uh, it was something I picked up later, and uh, it's a very helpful way, I think, of categorizing different types of books in your Bible. So you understand, we all understand our Bible is one book, but it's the collation of many books, 66 books. And uh, there's often we have this temptation when we read our Bible to read it as kind of a flat line. Like I knew when I was a kid, if I picked up any comic book, I just, it was going to be a comic book. That's how I would read it. And in a sense, we can build a category in our mind of Bible. And when I read the Bible, I open it up and it's going to have something there, you know, for me. And it's all kind of the same. And so genre is the idea that actually the Bible is made up of different types of literature. Uh, and we can talk about what those types are, but, you know, we would know that just if you've ever read the entire Bible, which I hope all your listeners have done, or they seem like they're in the process of doing with you, uh, then you'll already recognize that sometimes we're in stories of people's lives. Other times we're in romantic poetry. Other times we're in uh, war poetry. Uh, other times we're in uh, strange prophetic visions and things. And then we have the narratives of Jesus' life uh, repeated four times. Um, and then we get into these letters in the New Testament. These are all, when we say genre, these are just all different types of literature that you would find in your Bible. 
Yeah. So, so when I, when I hear people, when you talk about that flat line of the Bible, I, I feel like people want that flat line to be there. And what they want it to be is they want it to be just a list of facts that you need to know about God. And, and what they, what the way they word that is they say, this is me taking the Bible literally. And, and that's the word that, that people tend to try to use to sort of counter this idea of, of literal and, and setting on that, this sort of high value of, I believe the Bible is inspired. I believe it's authoritative. I want to take it literally. And when you start talking about this is a poem or that's a figure of speech, are you at all belittling that authority of scripture and that inspiration of scripture? Oh, I don't think so at all. And the illustration I would give you is if I um, write a letter to my wife when I'm traveling, does anybody write letters anymore? It's all email, but <laughs> I try to write letters sometimes. And, uh, you know, there's, she would understand that if my letter moves from speaking about what I'm doing and where I am and whom I'm with to rhyming meter, uh, that I've moved from, you know, natural prose discourse, that type of thing into poetry. And I'm, and, and so she's going to read that differently, the poetry differently. When I talk about the roses being red and the violets blue, that's, I'm, I'm hopefully, you know, doing more than making a rhyme about you. Uh, I'm trying to use words to communicate ideas. That's what poetry is. It's meant to be read in a different way. It, it in no way makes it less me or less from the authoritative pen of husband Paul Martin to Susan Martin. I'm just using a different type of communication. So I think understanding genre is actually um, uh, respecting the authority of the Bible even more. Uh, far from respecting it less, uh, you're, you're, you're looking at it for what it is, and you're beginning to understand what the original author intends by what he writes. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, that's fantastic because the whole roses are red. I, I've used that a couple of times. Uh, I've, I've had people come to me um, with particular theories of conspiring governments and things like that and then prove to me their theory from Scripture and say, see, it says this. And in response to that, be like, okay, but what it's talking about is creation and God's creative act in a poetic form so that it engages not only your mind in that factual sort of, this is what took place, it engages your imagination, engages your emotion, and you watch it spread out um, in, inside of that literature. And you not only appreciate the fact of it, but you appreciate the beauty of it um, that comes inside of a genre. And, and like you said, it, it doesn't change the, f the fact that these are facts, right? So I told him, I said, you know, roses are red, violets are blue. I'm standing here and you are too. It's a fact. <laughs> and we can express it inside of a poem. Although that one might not really inspire the senses in the same way uh, that an no, actual I think both of you and good I poem both would. Demonstrated, yeah, you and I have both demonstrated we're not poets. I think that's clear. So there's... <laughs> right. In, in no way, shape, or form. Yeah. So you, you, you said that this is understanding scripture and giving it its, its greater value, its due value. What are the benefits that we can find reading the genres according to the way that they were written and intended to be read? How does this actually strengthen our Bible reading? 
Yeah, I think in a lot of ways. So if, if we stay on the example of poetry, for instance, when you're in the book of Proverbs, um, you automatically, just by your eyes being on the page, you can recognize that there's something different here. You're moving in these little couplets, you know, an A, B pattern, A, B, A, B, line A, line B, that type thing. Uh, and then you're also noticing that there's these contrasts, there's repetition. Um, if you've read Proverbs a lot, you might be thinking, why are they assembled the way they are, that type of thing. And so uh, as, as you're doing that, you're, you're, you're automatically alerted to the fact this is different than reading the Gospel of Mark, where things are flying along at a rapid pace in the life of Jesus and covering his whole you know, earthly ministry in those 15 and a half, 16 chapters. So uh, I, I think just figuring out exactly what genre you're in is going to allow you to understand what the author is trying to communicate. I think I said that earlier, but mostly I'm doing that now because I don't remember your original question. <laughs> so we're talking about the value of reading it and how we actually honor the scripture better when we, uh, when we are able to read it in this genre. Uh, one example that comes to my mind is uh, when, we're, when we're reading the epistles, the, the letters from the apostles to uh, the various churches across the New Testament, we read those, and, and we'll get to the sort of breaking these down later, but, but we want to read those when we want to say everything that Paul or Peter or John have to say to us, we want to take and we want to soak it in and we realize this is the example and the call for us to live out the Christian life. When we read Judges, we don't necessarily take the stories of Judges and go, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be up to. Right. <laughs> right. We, when we were going through Judges on this podcast, yep. Marshall leaned hard on the description, not prescription. <laughs> that's, that's a good instinct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah and, it, and it highlights, right, that you're, that you're not only thinking about Honor, but you're thinking about where you are in the scope of the revelation as a whole. I mean, all of these things come into our reading of the Bible well. Right, right. Yeah. Marshall, any thoughts on genres so far that uh, Paul and I have kind of taken over? Anything you want to uh, add or a question you might have going it's, through so far? It's kind of an off comment. Um, I'm, I was fortunate enough, one of the very first classes I did in Bible college was a hermeneutics class where we went through uh, the literary genres of the Bible. And I'm so grateful for that because uh, growing up in the church, right, going to Bible studies and youth groups and that sort of thing, even working within youth ministry to some degree had no real inclination uh, as to the different genres. I mean, obviously I understood there were some differences, um, but but yeah, so it, I, I was fortunate at least, I, yeah, to, to have gone through the stuff that I did so early on uh, in my studies because it is it is really brought my my personal bible study um alive and, and my and my preaching too has certainly helped in, in the preaching as well so um yeah that's all i'm just yeah. surprised to hear that you hadn't got into it uh earlier on yeah so let's get uh let's look at these genres and uh we've broken down a list to be fair if you if you go and you decide to type into your googler uh, biblical genres, you're going to get a lot of different lists. There are a lot of different ways people choose to break these down. This is the way we've chosen to break it down uh, for this particular podcast. Uh, let's start with historical narrative. This is the biggest part of scripture, right? Uh, Paul, what's taking place in a historical narrative? Just what it sounds like. It's a narration of history. 
So we are being told things that happened and it's written in the, that, that particular way to describe to us uh, events, but these are events obviously that God thinks are important for us to know. They're not just mere facts. And in fact, um, if you think about, well, that'd be another topic, maybe it's slightly related, but even as you, as you realize that, that, that God has limited himself, if I could use that, God is unlimited, mm -hmm. um, but he has he's limited his communication to us, I'll put it that way, uh, to those 66 books of the Bible. And so these sections of narrative, even the ones with lots of names that seem to go on and on and on, um, are, are vitally important. They're all the word of God, and they are all for our benefit and for our learning and for our understanding who God is and what would God require of us. So I think we include in our list, uh, is this right, uh, New Testament Gospels as well, Book of Acts? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you've got, you've got those as well that are, you know, recounting things to us, but it's not just, uh, you know, here's the history book on certain things that happened in the life of the church. These are, all of this it has the intention of teaching us about the Lord and how the Lord would have us live. Yeah. You know, we were talking before the show started about uh, MacArthur preaching every word of the Bible to his church uh, and the various places where that would become difficult. Some of the divisions of the promised land, where and this goes to this person in this city and the pasture lands uh, surrounding, and it just goes on for like, the, I need to look up those sermons and find out exactly how that was handled. How would, how would Paul Martin preach that? Well, I'll tell you, John only preaches from the New Testament. So although he uses oh, okay. the Old Testament as an illustrative tool, uh, he has preached the entire New Testament and I think has started over again. So uh, that he's safe from that at that level. <laughs> uh, but if I was preaching those sections, um, I'm trying to remember which ones I have preached. Uh, I have no problem for the sake of a you know, 40 to 50 minute sermon summarizing. And I, mm -hmm. I've often enlarged scope passages like that encourage people as they're able to read through those passages in advance say i'm going to cover these four or five chapters we won't have time to read them um but recently for instance i preached through the book of job which is different not historical narrative but large and uh we came together as a church and pretty much read the whole thing we didn't read all three cycles of debate between job and his three friends we took the largest one and had different readers that kind of thing just to get the words out there for people uh, mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, when you, get, when you get into those, they need to be taught and you can be creative and um, not be doing injustice to the word. Right, because what we want to guard against is uh, saying this part is insignificant mm -hmm. and I'll, we'll speed through this and get to the significant bits. Right. When I was a missionary in Buenos Aires, we were, we were going through the school's library and we came across this book. The title of the book was The Bible, subtitle, The Really Interesting Bits. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I hope Jesus made it. <laughs> and so that book made the rounds uh, in, on everyone's desks uh, just because it was just mind-boggling. Uh, yes. I mean, you know, children's Bibles do that, right? That's, that's sort of a, a problem with children's Bibles is they do kind of pick and choose how they're going to do things. Uh, but to actually title your Bible in such a way as to say, 
don't worry, I've moved the insignificant things from the word of God. Uh, because although it is all God breathed, only some of it is actually valuable for teaching and such things. Yeah. That's like a little so, yeah, uh, so, Thomas Jefferson right there, huh? Just it is. It is very like. Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Yeah. So historical narrative, this is going to cover some, some of these, what people might tend to feel are drier areas. It's going to take us through the law because the law was historically then given uh, to Israel. It's going to move us through the genealogies uh, and it's going to move us through some some really hard things like judges, you know, we, we've already sort of like poked at this a little bit. Um, sometimes we're able to look at it and we're able to say, this was a bad choice that they made just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean you need to make the same choice. Sometimes it's not that easy of a decision, right? So we were talking about this um, in, when we were working through the historical narrative, David is sitting with his men outside of town. He's, they're, they're surrounded by enemy soldiers. And he says, if only I could have a drink from the well in Bethlehem. And his men go and get it. Like secret service operation, cross enemy lines, get the water, bring it back. And David pours it on the ground and says, I, how could I drink this? Right? And so he pours it out and says, there's an offering to the Lord. The Bible doesn't tell us this was a good thing or a bad thing, are we left to then wrestle with this? Do we need to know whether or not this is something God would condone or God would condemn? Uh, same true with Solomon. One of the first things he does uh, is he marries the daughter of Pharaoh. The Bible doesn't tell us if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Later on, we find out that marrying all these women trips him up. But in that moment, there's, there's no indication. So how do, how do we wrestle with these things when when we're trying to use the Bible as a revelation of God and a moral compass, but in a historical narrative, we're not always given a black and white, this is right or this is wrong. It seems to me that, that you're, you're highlighting what is probably the most significant problem for Bible readers, which is we tend to open the book and say, there needs to be something on this page for me right now. God has to speak directly to me from this page. And we miss the most critical step, what we've sometimes called, you've got to figure out what it meant to them then, T-H-E-M-T-H-E-N. What did it mean to them then? Our first job is to, is to do that. So in your examples, you know, why? Why did those men uh, go and draw water from the well in Bethlehem? Why did David pour it out? What does it say about, are there hints in that text? Are there hints in other parts of the Bible uh, that would maybe give us some understanding to the meaning of what all of that meant to David? And I'm, I'm not a big you know, believer that you gotta go and buy every commentary on First um, and Second Samuel in order to figure out that event. I think the Bible is so remarkable in the fact that it, um, you know, we're talking about genres. Well, you can be in some historical narrative and then find yourself in a poem in Psalms that gives all kinds of light into what that event was in that historical narrative. So what we would call the analogy of Scripture, how Scripture interprets Scripture, uh, becomes so super helpful. But the crucial thing is that we got to get ourselves away from thinking, you know, this Bible is not uh, chicken soup for the soul, where I just got to find something to get me through the day. Sometimes it is like that. Sometimes you open it and you know, the Lord just mercifully shows you something. Mm -hmm. uh, but our job is to figure out what did it mean to them then? 
and why does God have it in here? How does it relate to the rest of the scripture? What is it teaching me about God? What is it teaching me about people? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, I appreciate that because we always want to be pushing against the fact that moral, moral Christian morality is an outcome of the redeemed heart and a life consecrated to him. Moralism is not our goal, right? right. And so looking, looking through every verse and chapter of scripture to say, uh, how does this change what I do so that I can be pleasing to God is coming at it from a wrong direction. It's not a revelation of self. It's a revelation of God showing his self to us so that we understand his story. Um, yeah. So, and if you can yeah. find that, that old lady in your church or uh, somewhere in life who didn't go to Bible college, you know, just was faithful to read her Bible probably every day of her life and read it and read it and read it and read it and read it. Uh, I like to say that it, it's like you're something like a, you know, a white cloth that's being dipped in red dye. And as that, you know, the first time it goes in, it comes out kind of pink. The next time it goes in, it comes out a little redder. And the next time it goes in deeper and deeper. And, and that's what just the constant reading of scripture will do is that exposure, even if you're not putting all the pieces together, um, that exposure is, is teaching you what God is like and teaching you what God would have for you. So even when you're in some of those places that are frankly weird to us, um, customs, habits, uh, ways of doing things, um, you know, Ruth pulling up uh, Boaz's, <laughs> covering his feet in the middle of the night. I'm like, what's all that? Like that's, that ain't happening today in, in our culture and in our ways. So it just, you just read and you read and you read and you read. And then these pieces begin coming together through the years. And I think we begin to, God willing, be sanctified in our own lives and take on uh, a greater likeness to Christ himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the poetry. Uh, poetry is not always confined to certain books, but there are certain books that are profoundly poetic. So where are we most likely to find poetry? Yeah. The book of Psalms, of course, is uh, our primary source of poetry. Uh, Song of Solomon is largely a poem. Uh, and as you said, there's other places in the scripture where uh, you'll find poems. The nice thing for us as English Bible readers is that this is almost always offset on the page. Uh, it, it's, it's not, you know, stretched to the columns so that when you, when you see a different kind, kind of type font, uh, these are the English translators helping us to say, oh, this is poem now. This is different than where I was before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and when we read poetry, how is that going to be different for us than reading historical narrative, for example? What are, we, what are uh, we looking for in the poem? Well, I think what's really helpful when you're in Hebrew poetry is uh, there is generally, almost all the time, this kind of parallelism where um, God is my rock, second line, God is my fortress. Well, that's really saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, a rock and fortress, it's just, it's just emphasizing it in a poetic way. Much as I could say to my wife, I love you, or I could then, you know, move into poetry. I won't do the roses are red or red again, uh, but I could, you know, craft words together and, and stack up ideas that are all trying to communicate the same thing. Uh, so if you go to Psalm 119, for instance, you've got 
you know, verse after verse after 176, is it, uh, verses of, of just the Word of God, three verses in the entire psalm that don't include some reference to the Word or law or some you know, reference to God's Word. Well, David could have just wrote, hey, guys, God's Word is super important, and you should really pay attention to it. Boom. I like it. He could just leave it with <laughs> I, God's word is matters and I like it. And I like it. Uh, but he chose to do something very profound where you take every letter of the Hebrew alphabet mm -hmm. and you start each you know, verse of every stanza with that letter. And why does he do it that way? He's obviously just the length of that particular poem is telling you the great value he places on God's word. And then the repetition and the fact that you can come up with that many different ways of talking about the same thing. All of that, just the structure of the poem itself, the repetition within the poem, all of that is teaching, as well as, of course, the, the actual words of the text. Yeah, and, and I would say to, to the people who listen here from, that are from our church, one thing that we, we really hammer hard on is the idea that the chapter breaks come later. Chapter and verse breaks are something that we have infused into the scripture didn't come along for like they're they're pretty recent in the uh, yeah. the greater scheme of of biblical history uh and and i always try to ask people to read past those and to to move away from those things i love i love the uh, scripture uh the the readers editions that don't have them at all um but in the poetry books that's not the case right at this point we do want to take them in their chapters and each chapter is a new thing, a new poem that stands alone, right? Yeah, I would say that definitely in the book of Psalms, not so much though in sure. the Song of Solomon, where, where I would think what you're saying would work really well is get rid of all the chapters and verses, and, uh, and then you'll start to see uh, the actual structure of the poem itself probably more clearly than when those mm -hmm. chapters and verses are there. But if you do that in Psalms, you're just gonna be confused. You'll be very confused. <laughs> All right. So after poetry, uh, let's talk about the uh, the prophetic literature. Yeah, prophetic so literature. Where where are we going to find the prophetic literatures? Primarily, uh, you know, your major prophets: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation. Well, Lamentation is probably there's a dispute on where it goes. I would say it's more wisdom literature. Ezekiel, Daniel. Then you get into the minor prophets: Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Uh, so the end of your Old Testament those books that uh, many people just kind of forget about um, and get on to the New Testament, but you will find that they are rich and vital in your understanding of the New Testament. So worth your effort. Yeah. So when we talk about prophetic literature, what we're not talking about is the way prophecy tends to be used today in, in sort of modern context where we're saying, you know, how's the world going to end? What are those prophecies that we're looking for uh, for that? What we're talking about generally, that's going to be apocalyptic literature, which we'll get to. Uh, but this prophetic literature is God's people, or God, a God, the man of God speaking to God's people, the message of God, generally a message of repentance. Is that fair to say? Yeah, the way I like to say it, uh, somebody, I learned this from somebody else a long time ago, is, is just pay attention to the amount of demand for ethical change. Hmm. So people tend to think, because I think, you know, it's a prophet. He must be foretelling the future. When in reality, it's a prophet. He's calling you back to obedience. So whether it's Isaiah or Daniel or 
um, get into some of the later. I just finished in my own reading recently through some of those last minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Uh, it's, it's a call to ethical change now. And there, there most certainly are places in the prophetic that speak about the future. But even then, it's here's what's in the future, but I'm telling you this so that you'll stop being foolish now and turn back to God. It's not so you can write bestsellers or make movies. It's so you would get your act together because what's coming is bad for you unless you change. Yeah, it's kind of like a parent saying to their kid, if you don't stop, this is going to be the outcome, right? Uh, and then there are those tragic moments where it says, and because he is God, absolute foreknowledge, and says, and you won't stop, and this is what's going to come to pass. Um, and and those those hurt a little bit, right? Uh, but but I think yeah, those, those prophetic moments are, you know, God calling His people back into what they were supposed to be doing all along, and uh, and they can be heavy reads, right? Um, when when you read the Bible chronologically, I don't know if you've ever uh, taken on the the chronological reading as as your yearly plan, but that sort of mid to late summer when you spend about a month and a half in the prophets, mm -hmm. uh, you find yourself just, sometimes you can find your heart just eager for the Christmas story because, <laughs> because it is condemnation rained down on you. Uh, every once in a while this glimpse of sunshine, right? Like there is an Isaiah chapter 11 uh, where you see, no, it's gonna, it's gonna work out in the end. Uh, but those very quickly, that window gets shut and we move on again to the, uh, this is what God has in store for those who will not consecrate themselves to him. Yeah. yeah. All right. You mentioned wisdom literature. What's that? Uh, well, I think th this is where uh, you can get a little bit of a dispute amongst the, the literary folks. Some would say that the book of Psalms is wisdom literature. I, I tend to think it is and that Poetry is maybe more text type than literary genre, but that gets into discussions that don't matter that much for us. So typically wisdom literature should be uh, the book of Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, maybe Lamentations, although it might be its own little literary genre too, because lament is pretty distinct. Uh, but we're really safe if we stick with, um, you know, Job, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and this is where we're, the, the reason we're doing this uh, special episode is that we are, are getting into the prophetic. Uh, we are getting into Proverbs. And so in, in getting into there, sometimes it'll read in, in longer runs. Sometimes you get these sections that are just sort of like these fortune cookie sayings running all the way through. Uh, and, and sometimes those can be a little bit confusing. I, I want to pick out two particularly popular, common uh, ones to talk about. Proverbs 26. Do we speak to a fool in his folly or do we not? Because in consecutive verses, he tells us different things. Yeah, I think that's a great example. Uh, so I'll read the verses. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Mm. So one is about me. Um, if I answer him according to his folly, I'll be like him. I don't want that to be true. The other's like him. If I don't answer him, he'll be wise in his own eyes. Answer a fool, don't answer a fool. Which am I supposed to do? Well, this is where reading the whole book 
of Proverbs gets really, really helpful because even in that chapter, uh, you're in a whole chapter, what you might call foolology. This is what a fool is. And, and, and you're getting a long list of characteristics of what a fool is. But that is that, that's just chapter 26. Throughout the whole book of Proverbs, you have this contrast between what you might call lady wisdom and lady folly, madam folly. And, and if you're reading the whole book and you understand the genre of the literature, uh, then you understand that um, this is not just a mashed together you know, collection of sayings. I have a file on my computer. It's called quotes. It's just when I find something I like, I throw it into this document. Uh, there's really no rhyme or reason. I'm not one of those smart pastors that has amazing filing systems and things. So I just have this really long document. Uh, but that's not what Proverbs is because Proverbs has been structured in a particular way. So if you start in chapter one, you go to chapter 31, uh, you're going to start to see some patterns. So when you get to chapter 26, you're like, hold on a second. We've been talking a lot about fools. I, I go back to chapter nine. I was warned not to go the, the way of the, the foolish woman. I, I'm being called to follow after the, the wise woman, lady wisdom here. She's been extolled all these different times throughout the book. So there's more here than just how am I supposed to answer my neighbor who's being a real idiot about the fence. <laughs> um, it, it, this is a whole life. Uh, so yes, it has something to do with my neighbor and you know the fact he's crossing into my property, all those kinds of things. Um, but the key thing is, I don't want to live my life as a fool. So now, in, as I'm engaging my neighbor who is acting in a foolish way, he's acting according to folly, I have to now take that truth, along with all that I've learned in this particular book of wisdom literature, and say, how does this work itself out here? Now, I'm not saying that's the only verse you ever have to go to when you have an asked to be neighbor, but it might be one that you consult with. And the great part about wisdom literature, these these proverbs in particular, they're not given to be, you know, maxims. This shall always, if you, if you do A, B will always happen. It's wisdom literature. The, the genre of literature itself is well known to state things in a way that, you know, this is, this is basically true. <laughs> if, if you grab a passing dog by the ears, trouble will come. So don't mm -hmm. meddle in other people's quarrels. It's like pass, grabbing a passing dog by the ears. However, some dogs are very tame, and you might grab them by the ears, and nothing may happen. But we understand that because it's a proverb. It's, it's a way of communicating. We're supposed to think about it and go, oh, me getting involved in somebody else's argument is like grabbing a wild dog by the ears. Bad idea. Boom. So all that to say, I think you take each proverb on its own, understanding that these are general truths to guide us in our life. Uh, but they're certainly not uh, ever held out to be, and Solomon certainly wasn't, hold, certainly wasn't holding them out to be, um, you know, if you do A, B shall always happen. Right. And, and I think, let's, let's, put a, let's put a very current spin on it. If you go outside, you may or may not get coronavirus. Wisdom is stay home, right? Um, and so, so even though, even though it's, it's telling you, this is, this is what you ought to not do. It's not saying a 100% of the time. I think, I think that can not be highlighted more than in 22.6, where it tells us that if you raise up your child in the way that he should go, 
when he's old, he'll not depart from it. I've had so many parents bring this to me and say, my kids just, they, we raised them in church. We prayed with them. We did family devotions. Uh, and, and now they, they want nothing to do with God. Is this on me? Did I not raise them up? How do you answer that question? Surely you've heard that question before. Yeah, many times. And I think it's a great example of, you know, pushing the Proverbs uh, in, in further than they were intended to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even Solomon, who wrote this proverb, um, not all of his children followed the Lord. So it, it is a way of communicating a general truth. Now, this particular proverb um, is complex in other ways. And, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure that we have the, the most um, helpful translation into our cultural milieu and, and, and language and the way we read it, because it sounds very much like train up a child the way you should go, even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. It sounds like a carte blanche promise. I've seen it on little cards and plaques in people's homes and that type of thing. Um, but I mean, it's a, it's a fair enough translation of the proverb. Um, but I, I would say you have to understand it's a proverb. It's generally true. If you raise your children according to the discipline and instruction of the Lord and you love them to death, and no matter who they are or what they do, uh, you honor them as image bearers. Uh, this is what it is to train up a child. Now, is it training them up in the way they should go? I mean, this is part of the emphasis to try and figure out. Is it saying, don't try to make your child into what he's not? Like, don't train up your nurse child to be a firefighter. She's, you know, she wants to be a nurse. She has that desire. She has the skills. Let her be a nurse. Don't make her be a firefighter. Um, is that the emphasis? Or is it the emphasis, as long as I do Bible, then um, they're going to, Stay close to God. Well, uh, I'm just saying it's wisdom literature. It's something to be pondered. It's something to be prayed over. And I think you can say, at the very least, it's generally true. You will see that as parents are faithful, God often honors this. But I have known some of the most faithful parents who have been so deeply heartbroken because our children are not saved by our parenting. They're saved by grace. And I think Solomon understood that as well. And I don't think Solomon was saying or contradicting what God would say in a hundred other places in our Bible, that we're saved by grace through faith. And I can't save my kids. God is the one who's got to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, let's go on then to the letters. In the New Testament, we have uh, some times where apostles are writing letters to uh, churches and, uh, and this in and of itself is a, a different kind of genre, which requires a different kind of reading. Uh, how do you take the letters? Yeah, so I'm probably most comfortable in the letters. I think in some ways they, they relate most easily to our Western sort of linear, logical thinking mindset. So especially if you like the Apostle Paul and anything he wrote, which he wrote a lot, uh, then you're going to find, you know, there's a beginning to this. There's a line of argument. He's going somewhere. There's generally this sort of, here's a bunch of things that are true about God, and here's some ways you should live in response to that kind of structure to the book. Uh, but they are. Would you, argue, would you would you agree? Sorry to interrupt, but would you agree that that this is sort of the flat line that when we're talking about people wanting to read the Bible as a flat line, the letters might represent that line that we want all of the Bible to be because it's the easiest for us to process. Yeah, and I, I would say 
more than that, we want the ethical commands of the letters to be what the Bible says. We want somebody to tell us, you know, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't lie. Uh, like we, we get that stuff, right? But we, and that's where, you know, if you're only reading that half of the letter, um, I don't think you're fully understanding even what Paul is getting at, um, because this is all behavior that's flowing out of a gospel reality, what God has done in you uh, through his mercy and grace. And so uh, even those ethical commands need to be rooted in the truth of who God is, which is generally in most letters at the front end of those letters. It's not always that way, but it, as a general case would be so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the, letters, the letters don't take nearly as much interpretation in the idea of, uh, you know, is this, is this going to be allegorical? Is this metaphor? It's, it's all pretty straightforward. And, and the other benefit of it is since the letters are New Testament, uh, it is the new covenant, the covenant that we live in. Um, tell, me, tell me how you handle this. I find myself tempted when I'm coming to the end of a sermon series and I'm praying, you know, God, what are we going to work through next? How can I lead your your people. I, I really struggle to get away from the gospels and the letters uh, because, because that's just sort of the, that comfortable wheelhouse. Um, how, how do you work yourself in, in, in a way that you wouldn't disparage those opportunities, but would also say, no, we're going to, we're going to spread out through scripture. Yeah. I, I'll just tell you what I do. Uh, I, I think there's a hundred different ways to do this, but I, I feel like I want my people to have a good grasp of the entire Bible. So I try to rotate around genre. So mm-hmm. I most recently finished a series on Job. Um, uh, I shouldn't start here because I'm going to forget ones. Uh, I've, I've done Exodus. I did James before that. I think I was in Exodus before that. So I often go back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament and then try to change genre as well. I do a lot of work in Psalms, um, just as one-offs, that type of thing. I have one of my associates preaching through different Psalms now. One associate's preaching in Colossians now. Uh, so we're just trying to give people as much of the, the whole Bible as we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, Tim, before we move on yep. from the epistles, there's something I, I did want to mention because it's something that I um, had to handle teaching through James recently. Um, so came, coming to the part where James is saying, oh, is a man not justified by his works, right? And, and not faith alone. And then having to, to compare that to when Paul says we're justified by faith alone, right? And so I think sometimes people need to remember that these epistles are also written into certain contexts, right? Not to, not to say that as fellow believers, we don't have a ton to glean from that. Um, but, you know, the, the context that Paul was writing to when he was writing to the Galatian church is different than the context in which James was writing. And so I think it's important for our people because sometimes we, 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 we open up a letter and we act like Paul is writing to the church of Stratford, Ontario um, or, or Toronto, Ontario. Right. And so um, to understand that they, they are letters, right. That they, this is a person writing a letter to a group of people to address particular issues. Um, it's authoritative. It's they often God breathed. Right. But um to not forget that element too, when we're in the epistles. Right. Cause it that's doesn't really take, change the truth. It changes the emphasis. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. And you, you bring up a great example there between Paul and James. And, and so it goes back to that, that issue, right? It's what did it mean to them then? What did it mean to the recipients that James tell us, tells us who's he's right, who he's writing to. 
What did it mean to these people? What's the immediate meaning to them? And from that, we can draw principles, which then are tons of application for us. Um, but if we get that first step wrong, we jump right to us and make it like James's writing to Stratford, Ontario in 2020, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to miss tons of stuff. Yeah. 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 Good stuff. Now for everyone's favorite, the apocalyptic literature. Uh, I, I've developed, I've developed a new, a new thought is to say, if, if you can't be as excited about Romans as you are revelation, uh, there's probably a problem in, uh, in the way you're approaching scripture. Uh, people, people get excited. They're, the book publishing world gets excited about apocalyptic literature. Uh, what are we talking about in, in apocalyptic literature? Well, I'm actually just about to start back into Revelation. I've preached Revelation before, and I'm going to start a series, God willing, this Sunday on uh, just the seven letters to the seven churches. And part of what I say in that series is I always used to mock people that would uh, do that. They preach that part because it seems easier than preaching the whole thing because it gets really crazy after that. But I preach the whole thing, so I'm allowed to do it now. Uh, but uh, we get that word apocalypse right from the first verse, right? The revelation, the apocalypto of Jesus Christ, uh, the revelation. And thank you, Tim. You get kudos right now because you said revelation in the singular. And this, this, it took me about six months of preaching through revelation to beat out of my church members revelations. There is only one revelation. It was given to Jesus who gave it to John who gives it to us. One revelation. You, sir, like that's mic drop moment for you right there. Well, well you know what? It took, it took uh, two seminary master's degrees for me to drop the S off of Revelation. <laughs> so money and time well spent. Well, well spent. Uh, yeah, but when we talk about apocalyptic literature, we're talking about something that was very common at the time John wrote, right? So uh, if I go back to my comic book example, um, imagine if, uh, you know, we, we all got buried in volcanic ash and the only literature that was found to explain our age was Marvel comic books. Uh, people would wonder, like, that's what these people were like. There, there was people flying around, like, or would they, would they realize that this was a form of communicating truths about justice, good and evil, that type of thing? Hopefully they would realize by uh, the literary genre of comic book, Marvel comic book, that that's what that is. I'm not saying that the revelation is a comic book. I'm only saying that it's uh, apocalyptic is a form of literature that was common and it was meant to be read differently. So we know, for example, uh, everybody has to allegorize at some point in the revelation. I mean, if you, um, you know, I, I, there's so many examples, uh, but if you're going to take every bull and, um, you know, man faced horse creature with scorpion tail as, being the the thing is he talking about that or is that meant to communicate for instance evil is it meant to communicate the demonic is it meant to communicate the church you go to revelation 12 the woman and the dragon the woman at the start of the chapter seems to be the mother of jesus mary and then later in the chapter without any warning she seems to become either the mother of the church or the church herself and and she's under attack and so you have this this rapid flipping around of imagery and, and metaphor and that's what apocalyptic is. It's, it's almost um, something to be read um, 
I was going to say excitingly, I don't know if that's a word, uh, but it's meant to communicate intensity. And it's meant, what, what's so powerful about it is in one sense, it, it's a way to say more. So you, mm-hmm. if you have, right. do you both have kids? Do you have kids, Marshall? Yep. 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 Yeah. So, you know, like you can tell your kids, like, this is how, you know, a tree grows. Or you can tell your kids how a tree grows, like God sends water and then the water does this and, and it goes into the ground. And, and so we're, 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 there's just different ways to communicate. And apocalyptic is a very unique way. There's some of it in Daniel and uh, there's a whole lot of it in the Revelation. Although it's not all the Revelation, it's a lot of it in the Revelation. And uh, it, it's a way to um, communicate truth again about who God is and about what God would have from his people. Hmm. Yeah, and so what, when I when I teach through Revelation, I I tend to be to let people know ahead of time. I'm self-proclaimed the most boring and anticlimactic teacher of Revelation maybe you've ever had. I would summarize Revelation to say this, and you can correct me, Paul. Feel free. Uh, Christ is coming to put judgment on the earth. It is going to be beautiful for those who are in Him and equally disastrous for those who are not. Amen. And, and what these things are, and when these things take place, and the order that they take place, are details that seem to be hidden for a reason, but they do, they do excite the mind to, to understand the gravity of being apart from Christ and the bliss of being in him. Is that fair to say? Yeah, amen. And, and, and even think about how Jesus is portrayed in apocalyptic literature. I, I'm not convinced that when Christ returns, he'll have tattoos you know, running down his thigh about Son of Man and Lord of Lords and a sword coming out of his mouth. I think these are images that are used to say things about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So it's telling us that this is God the Son returning and he's coming with judgment. He'll judge by his words. And when you start reading the whole revelation, you realize when this great momentous battle comes, uh, it appears that Jesus shows up and just says, over and wins. It's not much of a battle when it comes right down to it. He's portrayed as so powerful. And you go into chapter one and all this, you know, the bronze feet and the flowing white hair and the eyes of fire. These are all imagery of, of power and judgment, all of that. So when I preached Revelation, uh, I entitled the series Stand and Conquer for that very reason, because it seems to me when you get the the message to the churches at the beginning and the call from Jesus himself at the end, and just over and over and over again, telling the church, remain faithful, remain faithful. By the way, some of you are going to die. Remain faithful. By the way, some of you are going to get, you know, you martyrs under the altar there crying out for justice. You're going to have to wait because there's some more people that have to be beheaded. And, and just stand, stand, stand. And by your standing, you conquer. You conquer the evil one and justice will be done. And, and what's so amazing in Revelation, right, is almost every song that is sung by everybody includes the justice of God, often repeatedly so, that we are all praising God for his justice, which fires me up because I pastor a church of a bunch of people who have been endured much injustice in their life and some of them will never see justice done in this life but in that day when jesus comes back everybody's going to go there's justice 
None of us are going to be looking around saying, well, that was a little too harsh. Imagine perfectly meted out justice where we are going to glory in God for all that he's done. Sorry, I started to preach. Love the book. No, no as what you're doing that, I was getting excited too. I just like the way the way that apocalyptic literature brings so much vibrancy. And it's it's just a vivacious way of telling the story. Like you said earlier in the poetry, right? You could just say, This is it, and now you have the information, but it's it's inspiring inside of the the genre that is given. And and my favorite, my favorite is. And, the, and that, uh, that dragon was defeated, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony, right? Mm-hmm. Just that idea that, that our faithful witness to Christ's finished work is going to bring an end to this. And you just feel the weight that has built up through this whole drama, just exhale. And you see that sort of comic book imagery of the church tattered and torn, but victoriously standing over its enemy. And uh, man, it's, it's a great thing. And and I, I think what I would encourage people, because I I think Paul, that there are going to be some people who are going to listen to this. Uh, When I say that, I mean like my mom might listen to this, Um, but, (laughs) but it might be that someone else listens to this as well. Um, and, and, and that that someone might hear this and they say, whoa, whoa, you've gone so far into allegorizing the word of God that you might not be receiving all of the truths that are there for us. And what, what I would say is this, going back to the very beginning, the, the inspiration and the authority and the truth of the word of God rests in the message he's giving and not in the details that add up to that message, right? The judgment of God, the justice that he is going to deliver the victory for those who are in him, the destruction of those who are apart from him. That is the truth, whether or not it comes, like you said, you know, the hair of a woman, the teeth of a lion's tail of a scorpion, whether or not that comes from a sixth bowl or, or seal. I don't remember. I get confused between the bowls and the seals. Uh, to me, it's, it's neither here nor there. Maybe it happens exactly like that. Maybe it doesn't happen like that at all. The truth is be in Christ and be a part of the victory that he is going to achieve over our enemy. Fair yeah, enough. It could even, yeah, very much so. And I think it could be a really helpful thing. Um, you know, go to revelation one and take that description of Jesus there and try to draw it and mm-hmm. see what it looks like. Um, or yeah, you can just, things start to break down. They're inconsistent within themselves. If we take everything at the sort of face value, it shall be this, his eyes shall be on fire. Well, they're not, he's, he's a lion and a lamb. How, how is that possible? Um, he, he's a, you know, re, a returning warrior at the same time. He's all of these things. Standing so as, one, of, as a lamb slain. Right. And so all of these are communicating mm-hmm. truth about the real Jesus no one's no one's messing with the words nobody's uh trying to get away from every anything we're just trying to look at all of it and say what does it say about christ and we can do that because it is apocalyptic literature and as i said right at the start everybody i don't care who the interpreter is um you could be as uh you know if you want to use the term as most literalistic as possible 
but at some point you realize there's allegory here. There's, and all we mean by that is here is a, here's a picture that's explaining a truth. It's a mm -hmm. picture of a thing that's telling us what is true. Uh, so where we draw those lines, again, that may differ a little bit uh, between all of us. We're, we're, we're dealing in a form of literature where you want to walk very tenderly and make our conclusions probably very general, uh, but certainly not a test of fellowship and certainly not, um, you know, we don't need to worry that just because somebody thinks, uh, yeah, I don't think Jesus is going to have an actual sword coming out of his mouth. Um, they're, they're not doubting the scripture. They're not messing with the authority of the scripture. They're just seeing that as symbolic, which might be a better word than allegory, but a symbolism sure, yeah. there of, because um, for allegory, I've just got to thinking, for some people it can mean different things, I, which I don't think we're saying. I think what we're saying is there's symbolism in the words. Yeah, right. So, right. Um, yeah, so just, yeah, I'll, I'm jabbering on the same things. I'll stop. <laughs> Marshall, you want to throw something in on apocaly apocalyptic literature? No, just on the spot, right here off the top. I, I, no, you know what? As a as a as a novice preacher, I'm gonna I'm gonna steer clear <laughs> and and learn yeah. from those who know better than me. So, and that's why Paul's here. That's right, <laughs> Paul. Man, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great, great. I love talking about yeah. this stuff. I love my Bible. I, uh, yeah, huge respect for you and your ministry. I miss uh, seeing you at our at our once a month meetings since uh, since I've been moved away. But it was good to see you tonight. I appreciate it. So thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, and is produced by Alex Walker. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye bye.